This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. When a relationship is new, the sex usually comes pretty easy. However, as the years go by, partners often find that their sexual connection starts to decline. This doesn't have to happen, though. There are science-backed ways of creating and maintaining a sexual connection that lasts, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. In this episode, we're going to explore the three characteristics of relationships that sustain intimacy, how to cultivate lust in long-term relationships, why simply trying new things in the bedroom isn't always the answer, and much more. I am joined by award-winning author Emily Nagoski. She wrote the New York Times best-selling books, Come As You Are and The Come As You Are Workbook. Her latest book is titled Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. Emily has a master's in counseling and a PhD in health behavior, both from Indiana University. She lives in Massachusetts with two dogs, a cat, and a cartoonist. This is going to be a fascinating and important conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. At the start of each new year, a lot of people get obsessed with making major changes in their lives, and sometimes they make extreme or overly ambitious resolutions that end up being impossible to maintain. Maybe it's time for a different approach. What are some things that you're already doing well that you can expand upon in 2024? For example, maybe you're already a pretty good communicator. But if you can refine that skill even more, it might help you to improve a relationship, to deepen your friendships, or to make you more effective on the job. BetterHelp can connect you with a licensed therapist who can give you the tools you need that will empower you to find your strengths and to make them even stronger, resulting in positive changes in your life that really stick. Therapy can help you to develop positive coping skills, learn how to establish boundaries, and become the best version of you. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's 100% online, super convenient, and flexible to fit your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire, and they'll match you with a licensed therapist, but you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit betterhelp.com slash sexandpsych today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash sexandpsych. The Kinsey Institute at Indiana University has been a trusted source for scientific knowledge and research on critical issues in sexuality, gender, and reproduction for over 75 years. Learn about recent research, events, and student activities on their website at kinseyinstitute.org. You can also follow them on social media at Kinsey Institute. Hi, Emily, and welcome back to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hello, it is so great to be back. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. So I'm very excited for this new book that you have coming out titled Come Together. But before we dive into all of the great stuff that's in it, let me first ask you to tell us a little bit about the story behind the book. So it starts out with a story about you and how your sex life had kind of fallen a bit off the tracks. And I just wanted to say that I so appreciated reading that because a lot of people think that as sex educators, researchers, and therapists, that we just have everything all figured out when it comes to sex and further that we're doing it all the time. You know, there's kind of this stereotype of us as being hyper 
hypersexual. Uh, but the reality is that we encounter the same sexual issues as everyone else from time to time, right? So tell us a little bit about that and how the new book was born. Yeah, and I was worried about the self-disclosure. As a sex educator, part of my training is in negotiating, like thinking really carefully about times to talk about my own sex life and almost always not talk about my own sex life because it's really important that anyone who wants to talk to me about what's happening with them feels like they can talk to me about whatever it is. And if they know a lot about me and my sex life, they might decide that based on what they know about me, they can't talk about whatever else is going on. So it was a big deal for me to disclose that. And here's the story. My first book was called Come As You Are. I wrote it in 2012, 13, and 14. And writing a book about sex means you're thinking and talking and reading all the time about sex. And some people might think that makes it really easy to be interested in actually having sex. Turns out, absolutely not. I was so stressed out by the process of writing the book that I had zero interest in actually having any sex. So, like, for months at a time, nothing. For months. And then the book got published, and I went on book tour, and I was so exhausted and stressed out, I had started following my own advice. You know, a responsive desire. You don't have to wait for the mood. You put your body in the bed. You let your skin touch your partner's skin, and your body wakes up and goes, all right, I really like this. I really like this person. And sometimes that worked great. And other times I would put my body in the bed, let my skin touch my partner's skin, and I was so stressed out and exhausted, I would just cry and fall asleep. At that point, I was like, I need more advice than I gave in my own book. So I did what anyone would do. I went to Google Scholar and I looked at the peer-reviewed research on how couples sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term. And I was shocked at what I found on a lot of levels. But maybe the most shocking thing was that what I found there had zero relationship to anything happening in the like mainstream narrative about what sex and long-term relationships looks like, how it functions, how it feels, who has it. And I thought, there should be a book about this. And I realized, oh, <laughs> I, should, I, should, I should probably write a book about that. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I can totally relate to what you're saying about how it's a delicate balancing act between how much do you say about yourself and when is it appropriate to say that? And, you know, I was very much of the mindset for most of my career that I just wasn't supposed to talk about me at all. Yeah. Uh, increasingly, I've gotten comfortable peppering little anecdotes in here and there. But it's a delicate balancing act. But I think it also helps to humanize us as researchers and therapists and educators in terms of the work that we do. And for people to understand, you know, hey, we've got the same issues that you do. And we're all trying to figure out a solution together. Yeah. And, you know, though I was worried about it, the more I travel and talk about these things, the more people are like, thank you so much for saying that. Because if even you struggle with this stuff, then I feel like it's not such a big deal that I would struggle with this stuff. And we are all of us, like, we are going through things in our lives. And that's going to make it more difficult for us to like sustain a strong erotic connection with our certain special someones. And the more we can normalize that like, it's not, I mean, it is easy for some people. But if it's not easy for you, yeah, it's because it's not easy. 
Yeah, it's definitely not easy. So let's dig into the book. So early in it, you describe three characteristics of partnerships that sustain long-term sexual connection. They are friendship, prioritizing sex, and prioritizing what is genuinely true and what works in your unique relationship. So tell us a little bit more about how you arrived at this conclusion. Why are these three things so important in relationships? Yeah, so I looked at a combination of research packages, some of the most important research for this, obviously John Gottman and Sue Johnson's research separately on long-term relationships, generally speaking. Also, Peggy Kleinplatz's work on optimal sexual experiences, her team in Ottawa interviewed dozens of people who self-identified as having extraordinary sex lives, as having magnificent sex. Magnificent sex is the title of Peggy and Dana Maynard's book. It is Wonderful. It is on the academic side, but like those are those are our people, right? Mm-hmm. So magnificent sex. It's delightful. Everyone read it. And uh, Shamika Thorpe, who studies Black Southern women's sexuality, and I want to say it came as a surprise to me, but honestly, it was not a surprise to me that the research that most powerfully informed my understanding of how sex works in long term relationships came from studies of populations that are not the people you think of first when you think of like who has access to sexual pleasure because the typical age at which the people in Peggy's research had their first experience of magnificent sex was 55. Wow. Which means that for a lot of people, it happened later than that, which is both like of great news because that means it's truly, literally never too late, and also heartbreaking on a certain level because it means it took them decades being sexual people to find their way to their true erotic selves. So those were some of the bodies of research that were most important in helping me sort of break down and frame my understanding. Also, Barry McCarthy and Emily McCarthy, sex therapists who are in their 70s and have been married for over 50 years themselves, talking about senior sexuality. Jane Fleischman, who studies, her dissertation was on the sexuality of people who were at Stonewall. So boomers, like what are their sex lives look like now and what are the things that make it great? Because it turns out it's better than you might expect. Those are some of the most important pieces of research that helped me put together these three things. And they turn out to be surprisingly controversial. The idea that having a strong friendship at the foundation of your relationship, that you admire and trust the person you have sex with for decades. In the process of writing the book, some of my beta readers and my editor felt that admiration and trust were maybe too aspirational, not realistic enough, which... This is another kind of heartbreaking thing that people feel. I tell the story of like, you know, I hear the garage door open and I know that a certain special someone has arrived home and I feel a little zing happiness in my heart. And she's like, that is not relatable. (laughs) And I was like, oh, no, no, I want that to be relatable for you. And also, I don't talk about passion. I don't talk about desire. I don't talk about horniness. I talk about liking the person as the best motivation for sustaining a strong sexual connection and also for being motivated to work through the challenges that will inevitably happen in a long-term relationship. 
And the second one is prioritizing sex, which means you decide that it matters for your relationship, that you stop doing all the other things you could be doing. And there's so many other things we could be doing with our time. Why would we not, you know, watch the queen just so that we could like rub our skin against another human being's skin? Like, why is that important? Why does that matter? And it turns out there's a lot of different answers to the question of, like, what is it that you want when you want sex? That's a much more complex thing. And let me normalize that it is not a priority in all relationships, and it is normal for it to be a priority at some times in a relationship and for it to drop away from the priority list at other times in your relationship when there's really stressful things happening at work, when you add tiny young humans to your life, when you are house training a puppy for crying out loud. There's all kinds of things that are like, we're going to get through this and then we will get back to the sexy part. And then the third one is the one that... I never heard anybody just like say straight out loud, which is that all of us have been taught 100% the wrong stuff, not just factually incorrect, but wrongheaded in a deliberately oppressive way. We have been trained to believe that we are supposed to be a certain way as people, particularly around our gender and sexuality, and that our partners are supposed to be a particular way around their gender and sexuality. And if we break those rules, the stakes are life and death high if we fall short of the standard that was set for us by some fictional nonsense in the world. And letting go, breaking through, weeding out All the stuff we were taught to believe we're supposed to be as sexual people and all these ideas we have about what our long-term sexual relationship is supposed to look like, it is not easy. I don't pretend that it's easy, but the reward for doing that work is gaining access to the magnificent, optimal, extraordinary sex that, you know, turns the universe into rainbows. So it's worth it. (laughs) Yeah, there's... So much you said there that's fascinating, you know, including this idea, this finding that for so many people, they don't have their first experience with magnificent sex until much later in life than you'd think. On the one hand, I'm optimistic about that because I'm not 55 yet. So maybe the best is yet to come, right? So it depends on the way you're looking at that. But I think part of what you were saying too about how busy we are, how much is going on and kids and all this other kind of stuff, it kind of makes sense too that magnificent sex often doesn't happen till later because people are so overwhelmed with careers and families for a big chunk of their lives and education and everything else going on. So maybe part of it is just about being at a life stage where you might have more opportunities to really pursue that and to think about what it is that you really want from sex. And that was one of the key things that I really want to explore further from your answer is, you know, When we talk about what do we want from sex, a lot of people kind of go to, well, of course, it's it's about hedonism. It's about your own pleasure. It's about having an orgasm. But in my own research on sexual fantasies, I see that that's not the case at all. You know, in fact, when most people describe their fantasies, they don't even mention orgasm. You know, that's not really what's driving them. They're looking for something much deeper. So, Emily, what have you learned from your work about what people actually want from sex and why is it important to take that into consideration? Yeah. So I started asking this question in my workshops. What is it that you want when you want sex? And people would sort of flippantly say orgasm. And I would challenge them. Okay, but you might be able to have an orgasm by yourself. 
And if you can't have an orgasm by yourself, there's whole other books and workshops specifically for that. And just by the way, the oldest person I've ever met having their first orgasm was 73. So another example of it's truly never too late if that's a goal for you. But if you want to have an orgasm, that's one thing. And if you want to have sex with another person, what is it about having that other person present for that orgasm or for all of those erotic experiences? What is it that you want when you want that other person there with you. And this is totally informal. It's a combination of the people who've attended my workshops and people who subscribe to my newsletter. This is not science. It's just me asking a couple thousand people, what is it that you want when you want sex? And I found four big themes, and these are not the only answers people give, but the number one by far, the most common answer is connection. What people want when they want sex is connection. And that makes perfect sense, right? Because humans are intensely social. Jonathan Haidt calls us 90% chimp, 10% bee. We're basically a hive species. We're a swarm species. We are a herd species. Connection is a literal biological drive. We die of loneliness. We sicken of loneliness. And sex is one of the many ways that humans meet their need for connection. For some people, it's kind of a peripheral way to get a connection need met. For some people, it is a central way that they get their connection need met. And it is the most common thing that people say that they want when they want sex. The second thing they say that they want is shared pleasure. Like you said, it's, I don't just want to feel the sensation of my skin rubbing up against another person's skin. I want also the awareness of their enjoyment of the sensation of our bodies rubbing together. I want to know that they like what's happening. I want them to witness my pleasure. There is something specific about sharing this pleasurable experience. That is what people want when they want sex. The third thing, unsurprisingly, is being wanted or feeling wanted. And when it comes to sex, like no wonder so many of us grow up being taught that our sexuality is dangerous or disgusting or dirty or in some way makes us a bad person. And to have the experience of having our sexuality received not just as acceptable, but as like, yes, I want that. That is yum. So good. Give me more. No wonder people really want to feel desired. And that's also related to the ways we experience emotional attachment. We want our certain special someones in our lives to miss us and to be glad when we come back. We want to be wanted. And then the fourth pattern of responses is a variable I started calling freedom, which has to do with being able to shed all the other things we have to do and pay attention to in our lives. Maybe you've got kids to raise. Maybe you've got a degree to earn. Maybe you've got a job to go to. Maybe puppy to house train. You've got family members who need your help. You have other friends you want to pay attention to. God forbid you just want to watch a movie and then go to sleep, right? We're busy. We want to drop all the other responsibilities. We want to create a bubble of space where all we have to pay attention to is the pleasurable things that are happening inside our bodies. There are lots of other answers like affirming identity, feeling powerful, feeling 
uh, like you're doing something right in a relationship. There are lots of reasons that people give for wanting sex with a partner, but those are the big four. Yeah, those all make a ton of sense, especially in light of my fantasy research. Like those four themes are present in so many of the fantasy descriptions that people provide. And even if you think about something like, say, a threesome, you know, a group sex experience, all four of those elements are often there, right? They want this very immersive experience where they're in the moment. They want that shared connection with other people and the shared pleasure and excitement. Everybody's enjoying themselves, but it's also about feeling wanted. You know, people often want to be the center of attention in that scenario and they're desired by multiple other people. So yeah, I think those are really common themes in terms of what people want from sex, no matter what kind of sex it is that they want. Yeah. Now, in your book, you talk about how sexual novelty is often believed to be the key to keeping the spark alive in long-term relationships. And we hear this all the time in the media. You know, try new things is one of the most common and popular pieces of sex advice. However, you argue that that isn't necessarily the most important feature. So tell us a little bit about why novelty in and of itself isn't quite enough. Yeah. I don't want to poo-poo novelty. For some people, Trying new things truly is a great way for them to access their erotic curiosity and to give themselves a domain to play in. So for some people, novelty is great. And if there were one phrase I could eliminate from the English language, it would be keep the spark alive. Because it's not about spark. Sustaining a strong sexual connection over the long term is not about spark. Spark is, I interpret it as being that feeling that you get at the beginning of a relationship, the hot and heavy, fallen in love, can't wait to put my tongue in your mouth feeling. And the narrative that I call the desire imperative is that that kind of desire, that sparky, hot and heavy, can't wait feeling is the right, best kind of desire. And it can only last for a certain amount of time. And eventually over the course of a relationship, it will fade until, you know, you get to your fifties and all your hormones drift away and you're left to hold hands at sunset on a beach, I guess, and no more sex for you. And our only Alternatives are either to accept that sex is just going to go away because the spark is going to go away, or we can fight. We can invest time and money and energy and our attention and our self-criticism on trying to get the spark back, to keep the spark alive. And here's the thing. Sex in a long-term relationship, when you talk to people who sustain a sexual connection over the long term, they don't talk about spark. They don't talk about desire. They don't talk about feeling horny. It is not in like the top 10 things that they talk about when they talk about great sex. The things they talk about are pleasure. And what language would it take, instead of saying keep the spark alive, to keep the pleasure alive, to still like the sex that you have with this person? For some people, having really similar sex in the same bed that you've been having sex in together for the last 25 years, the safety and familiarity of that allows their sexual breaks to release so that they can relax fully into the sensory experience of sharing these erotic pleasures. For other people, novelty is great. They like the risk-taking part of it. They like the just the sheer serotonin and dopamine of trying something new. People vary. And also people change over the course of their lifespan and based on the context. We all know that when you're 
You know that experience of when you're like really, really stressed out and all you want to do is watch the TV show you've already watched 78 times. You basically got it memorized, but it's your comfort watch. There is such a thing as your comfort sex. And that is not worse than trying a new thing. What matters is not whether you're adventurous and trying new things. It doesn't matter what position you have sex in. It doesn't even matter whether or not you have an orgasm or how many orgasms you have. What matters is whether or not you like the sex you are having, which when you say it out loud sounds so simple and obvious. And also the number one reason couples seek sex therapy, desire problems not pleasure problems. People are really worried about desire. And I want to live in a world where people can skip over the idea of desire and go right to pleasure. Do you like the sex that's available to you? If you don't like the sex that's available to you, of course you don't want it. And if you do like the sex that's available to you, but you just you just can't you just can't get there. That was me. And I have many chapters about that experience and what to do. <laughs> I love that answer. And there are so many important things, nuggets of wisdom that you can pull out of that. And building on what you were just saying there about how if you're having trouble getting to that space of just being able to feel open to pleasure, you have this chapter I think it's chapter three, where you talk about learning your emotional floor plan and basically identifying the spaces that are pleasure favorable and pleasure adverse. So can you tell us a little bit about this floor plan metaphor and how you can create your own floor plan that might make it easier to travel to those pleasurable spaces more often? Yes. There's two ideas in the book that require two chapters. One of them is the patriarchy, Sorry about that. Uh, And the other one is the emotional floor plan. And this really was the key for me in transforming my own sexual relationship. So as I said, when things were not going well in my own sexual relationship, I turned to the peer-reviewed science and I ended up really leaning on the affective neuroscience of Jakob Panksepp. Jakob Panksepp, the father of affective neuroscience, famously the rat tickler. Um, P.S., how weird is it that we live in a world where we don't have one universally accepted model of how human emotion works? There's at least three. And I picked the one that included lust because only one of them includes lust. So, Jakob Panksepp, what he proposes is that the mammalian emotional brain has seven primary process emotions, one of which is lust. Uh, And we will talk about what the others are as we go along here. But the metaphor that helped me understand how to apply the affective neuroscience to my sex life was the idea that my emotions are spaces that are organized relative to each other. So for example, when I'm in my lust space, what other emotional space is it easy to get to? Or what emotional space am I in before I get to the lust space? in order to make it easy for me to get into the lust space. The example for me is seeking. Seeking is a, it's a, one of the pleasure-favorable spaces. It's curiosity, exploration, adventure. This is so for people for whom novelty is a thing. Seeking is going to be one of the spaces that has a doorway directly into the lust space. When I was in grad school, I dated pretty much exclusively grad students. And we would talk about our research and like this basically a water slide from talking about research to the erotic space for me. So it was very easy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right? uh, it's really nice to have that affirmed, by the way, because most people are like, well, okay, 
Good for you. <laughs> nope, I uh, get it. Yeah. Some people really love the idea of like travel. I have friends who sold everything they owned and traveled all around the world. And the, the things went wrong all the time. They had to solve problems almost always in countries where neither of them spoke the language. And that sounds like a nightmare to me, but they loved it. That adventure, the seeking, the curiosity, the exploration put them in a space where they felt really ready to dive into an erotic space. It had a doorway directly into lust. If you like going to art museums or lectures, learning things, uh, going to cooking classes, if that sort of learning new things opens you up to erotic experiences, then seeking has a doorway directly into the lust space. Play is another pleasure-favorable space. Play, Jakob Panksepp describes it as the uh, emotional system, the motivational system of friendship, which is so important for human beings. Play is any behavior that we engage in just because we like it when there's nothing at stake. And that's the really important part of the definition is that there is nothing at stake. Are you a dog person at all? I'm a dog person and a cat person. I'm I'm a pet person. <laughs> yeah. I always think of my dogs in a play bow, which is this like this soft face, this bow where they're like, they put their elbows on the ground and they look up at you and their ears are perked up, right? And that's an invitation that says everything that happens from this point on is play. There's nothing at stake. I mean no harm. If I bite a little too hard, you let me know and I will stop doing that. That invitation to play is universal in mammals, including in humans. And there's so many different kinds of play for us. There's rough and tumble play, like my dog inviting me with a play bow. He wants me to chase him. Then there's object play. You see this with young children a lot, where they're like, what is this object? They put it in their mouths to find out what more about it. They mess up, what is this object? And then what can I make this object do? Splashing in the water is object play. What is this? And what can I make it do? If we thought of oral sex as object play, what is this? <laughs> and what can I make this do? With nothing at stake. It's not about doing it right. It's not about making somebody come. It's about together playing and exploring and seeing what you can make this toy do. Ah. And no judgments about like the shape or size of the toy. Just, Ooh, what's this? That's play. And for a lot of people, including for me, that space has a doorway directly into the lust space. The last pleasure favorable space is the care space. Now, care is complicated because attachment is so important for humans. It takes up an enormous amount of space. In terms of an emotional floor plan, I actually think of it as being like an open concept living room and kitchen. Because in the living room of care, we've got, you know, like a sofa and a fireplace and you can snuggle on the couch with your certain and you're feeling like you're caring for each other. You feel tended to and you feel motivated to tend to your certain special someone. That feeling of being held and holding another person for a lot of people, there is a pathway from that feeling directly into the lust space. And a lot of people cultivate that sense of connection as foreplay, as a way to get ready to get into the sexy part. And not me, because people vary. People are all really different from each other. 
And remember how I said it's an open floor plan with a kitchen? Uh, There's what I call the kitchen of the care space, where you're not caring for, but taking care of. This is the kind of care that we give to our children and to people who are sick and to people who are not carrying their part of the responsibility of tending for a household. And when you are in the care, trapped in taking care of in the kitchen, and you're like, you can't get out of the kitchen because there's still more taking care of that needs to be done in the household, in the family, in your life, you cannot get out of there and go, there's not a pathway directly from the kitchen into the bedroom of lust. Nan Wise, in her book, Why Good Sex Matters, writes about this same research because a bunch of us nerdy authors are like, people really need to be talking about the affective neuroscience of the seven primary process emotions in her own inimitable way. She talks about discussing this with a heterosexual couple where she says, your care system is cock-blocking your lost system. (laughs) Think about it that way. But this is why the conversation about like relationship, friendship, intimacy its relationship with lust is so complex because there are some people who say intimacy is the foundation of an erotic connection. And there's other people who say that intimacy is the enemy of an erotic connection. And the reason they both say it and they're both right is because care is complicated. It is huge and it depends on the nature of the experience of care. So I recommend that people get, like you think about when you had Uh, an easy time getting into a sexy space. What state of mind were you in before that sexual experience? Were you feeling playful and rompy, like nothing was at stake and you were building a friendship? Was it adventure and exploration? Was it feeling really cared for and held and feeling motivated to care for and hold your certain special someone? That's going to tell you what are the spaces that are right next to the lust space in your emotional brain. And the floor plan metaphor does not work for everyone. Some people prefer to think in more abstract terms or to think about like, well, it's colors, it's a spectrum, and I have to transition from a blue state to a yellow state, which means I got to go through green. But my thing was, there are these pleasure adverse spaces, which are going to be really familiar. One is fear, one is rage, and the other is panic grief. So fear and rage, that's fight or flight, really straightforward. And then there's panic grief which is loneliness. Like I said, care is really important. It's a biological drive. We die without it. And there is an emotional system in our brain that notices when our care levels are getting low and pushes us first to a panic state. And then if we go too long without getting our attachment needs met, if we try to get our attachment needs met and fail, then we drop down into this despair of grief. So those are the three pleasure adverse spaces. And I was trapped in the fear space. I was stressed. I was overwhelmed. I was, it's everything from worry, anxiety, up to terror. Fear has so many different levels that you can experience it. And I was just stuck in run, work as hard as you can. And there is no doorway out of my fear space into the lust space. There is because I am a cisgender woman who grew up in America in the 20th century. There is a one-way door from my lust room into the fear room because that's what I was raised in. But there is no doorway out of fear directly into lust. So I had to learn like, okay, notice when I'm in the fear space and then how do I get out? Which 
I mean, I like I'm pretty good at the getting out of the out of the fear space. Wrote a whole book about that. That's my second book. It's called Burnout. Wrote it with my sister. The first chapter is about completing the stress response cycle, which is basically instructions on in how to get out of the fear space, how to get out of the rage space. Uh, so I know how to do that. But where do I end up when I'm out of there? Usually, I am in a non-emotional space that I call the utility room where my body just needs rest, which is why I would cry and then fall asleep. So for me, the treatment of my sexual dysfunction was managing my stress, completing the stress response cycle, and getting adequate freaking rest for my body. And then I could be well enough to make my way to one of the spaces that's right next to the lust space. And it turned out for this relationship that I'm in, the play space is number one easiest transition into the lust space. But I can't get to play when I'm too exhausted and too stressed out. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I think it really is a valuable metaphor. And yes, different people might resonate with different metaphors. There are lots of different ways you could think about this. But to the extent that you can understand how your own emotions work and you can figure out the pathways from one to another, that can make it easier to make the leap into a space that is closer to pleasure and can put you in the right headspace just so that you're able to enjoy it. And it gives people a shared language and permission. Like, of course I can't get to being interested in sex right now. I am frustrated as all get out with my certain special someone, and there is no doorway from my rage space to my lust space. So we have to process and deal with that frustration before we can even move in the direction of the lust room. Yep. Sometimes it's just a no-go. Yeah. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Emily. It was truly a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and to get a copy of your latest book? Yes. So emilynagoski.com is the website that has links to all my socials. The book is available wherever books are sold. Special props to the audiobook this year. I put extra care into it and I'm really proud of it. And I think a lot of people's brains are done, cooked by life lately. And the audiobook might be a little bit easier to absorb than sitting down and reading a physical book. Yes, I can relate to that. Sometimes listening is easier than reading. And I'll be sure to include links to everything in the show notes. Thank you again so much for your time, Emily. It was great to have you here. Thank you. You're so delightful and kind. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>